Let us uh, turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read verses 20 through 30 of Matthew Matthew chapter 11 as we consider this year that's ahead of us, uh, even though the idea of uh, a year churning, the idea of uh, reckoning of time is so uh, fabricated, meaning that the concept of counting times by years is not necessarily something that is uh, instituted by God, but it's helpful and it, it puts it in a certain mind frame to think about the future. And I would like to take the opportunity to do that now. Uh, So we're going to read verses 20 through 30 of Matthew 11. This is the word of our Lord. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazim! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who were exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your Son as we consider this passage. Give us strength to proclaim your word, and to receive your word, for asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Most of us have been to a Chinese restaurant where when you sit down at the table, there are placemats, and the placemats, they have the Chinese zodiac. Have you ever seen that, uh, where they have the Chinese horoscope with animals and years, and you can figure out what year goes with what animal, and what each animal signifies, which animal is a good animal, which animal is not so good, and it tells you something about the year you were born, and tells you something about the year that you're in, and what to expect, and so on. Well, 2021 in the Chinese zodiac is the year of the ox, and supposedly the year of the ox is a good year. Now, we all know that's all foolishness. We know that's not true. We know that uh, horoscope, zodiac, if anything, is a superstitious approach to life and that we don't really find anything uh, meaningful for us in those, in those things. But I think that the idea of thinking of a year as the year of something is a good idea. And I think for us to set our goals for 2021, to, to, to set our goals and try to accomplish something in 2021 is a good thing. So I would love for us at the Bible Presbyterian Church of Olympia to make the year 2021 the year of the yoke of Christ. The year in which we 
truly put on the yoke of Christ, give the reins of our lives to Him, and let Him be in control of everything that we do. And that we follow Him in everything that we do. We see this in this passage, in this wonderful, gracious invitation of verses 28 through 30. But to fully understand what He is saying to us in those verses, we really need to start with the more... Uh, somber verses in verse 20 leading our way to verse 28 as we see what Jesus has for us here and as we apply it to the coming year to this year that we're beginning in 2021 as we more faithfully put on the yoke of Christ upon our shoulders and I would like for us to consider three things as we go through this passage I would like for us to consider the condemnation of indifference We see that in verses 20 through 24, where these three cities refused to receive the yoke of Christ. And then in verses 25 through 27, I want us to see the adoration of sovereignty, where Jesus now turns to God, the Father, and praises Him for the revealing of the yoke. And then I want us to look at the invitation of grace, the actual receiving the yoke of verses 28 through 30. And I want us to finish by considering in practice what it means to bear the yoke of Christ in everyday life. That's the plan for us this morning. And I want us to start by considering the condemnation of indifference in verses 20 through 24. I want us to see how by refusing the yoke of Christ, these cities were condemned to eternity in hell. And I want you to notice that Jesus didn't condemn these cities because they, they viciously opposed Him. In verse 20, we read, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. As far as we know, Jesus wasn't attacked there, or suffered some tremendous persecution in these three cities. What the Holy Spirit tells us is that if that they did not respond to the ministry of Jesus with repentance that these major curses are put upon them because they just didn't care about Jesus. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum were just indifferent toward Jesus, just not interested in Jesus. Look at verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They just didn't care about Jesus. It wasn't that they were opposed to him. It wasn't that they were beating him up. It wasn't that they dragged that they, they dragged them through the streets. He just didn't matter to them. That's all. Now these three cities are all in Galilee, northern Israel, and they just happened to be Capernaum, for example, was the hometown of Peter, Andrew, John, and James. It was also the base of operation for all of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Every time he was in Galilee, Capernaum was in the picture. The bulk of the miracles that Jesus performed, they were performed in these three cities. He says that here, but also when you look at the four Gospels where Jesus was doing these things, he's in Galilee. He's around these three cities. And yet, they just didn't care about Jesus. Indifference toward Jesus is met with condemnation. Look at verse 22 and 24. But I say to you, if it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's Jesus talking to Chorus and Bethsaida. 
Then in verse 24, he's talking to Capernaum, and he says, But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. A woe is the opposite of a blessing. It is a malediction instead of a benediction. It is the opposite of the Beatitudes. To, be, to, to, be, to have a woe proclaimed upon you is to have the curse of God proclaimed upon you. And notice the different degrees of punishment in hell. Now, hell is bad. The, 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 the easiest place in hell is infinitely terrible and suffering and the wrath of God. And yet, Jesus says that it will be worse on the day of judgment for Chorasim and Bethsaida than for Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were traditionally thought of a place of Baal worship. The most famous Sidonia in the Bible is Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, and says... See those people who worship a false god? See those people who sacrifice their kids to these gods? Because Moloch was the main god in Sidon, who is a Baal, and Ashtoreth was the main god in Tyre. Both de- demanded sacrifice of human sacrifice of children. And see those people who are literally burning their children for these false gods? They're going to have an easier time in hell than you who refused to hear my word. You didn't burn your children to the Lord, to, to a God. You didn't just live out a, a life of out, completely outward unholiness. But I came before you. I proclaimed my word. I did all these miracles. And you went, eh, don't care. It would be worse on the day of judgment for Capernaum than for Sodom. And Sodom goes without needing any introduction. We know what was going on there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were destroyed by the Lord. And yet Jesus says, Capernaum, because I was here with you, I did my miracles in front of you, I proclaimed my word to you, and you just didn't care? Sodom's going to have an easier time in hell than you are. You know why? Because God takes into account opportunities. Gracious opportunities to believe in Christ that are rejected become charges against us in the day of judgment. And that's why so many times in the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit warns us, grip to Christ, hang on to Christ, stay with Christ, don't deny Christ, don't take your eyes off of Christ, because if you do, you're going to lose your life now and forever. We saw that in the call to worship this morning. People of God, a non-response to Jesus' gracious offer of the gospel is the most dangerous thing that you can do. Unbelief is the most dangerous sin you can commit. There's only one sin that gets you to hell. No other. And that sin is unbelief. What are you doing with Jesus? Are you indifferent to Jesus? Jesus has offered himself to you freely so many times. What are you doing with him? Are you just going, eh, I don't care? Don't do that. For the hell, the, the, the fires of hell are forever and forever without God. There's no worse sin than unbelief. And as Jesus finishes 
pronouncing these curses upon Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, all of a sudden the 70 disciples, remember when Jesus sent out the 70 disciples? He sent them two by two to go to the, all the towns of Israel and to pronounce, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, don't take an extra coat, don't take extra shoes, don't take money, everything's going to be provided for you. Proclaim the gospel. And now they return to Jesus and tells them all that he did. Now our passage doesn't say that, but if you go to Luke 10, where the the same thing is happening there and put them together, we see that between the curse of the cities and the proclamation of the revelation of the yoke, the disciples come back to him and says, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. Even the demons obey us. People are coming to Christ left to right. People are being saved. And as a reaction to that, in response to that, Jesus praised the Father for His sovereignty in revealing the gospel to some and not to others. And in verses 25 to 27, we, we read this beautiful adoration of sovereignty where Jesus thanks His Father for revealing the yoke for some and not for others. And this might strike us wrong because Jesus praises the Father for hiding the gospel from the proud. You think, why is Jesus doing that? Why is Jesus thanking God that he chooses not to save some people? Look at verse 25. And at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. Thank you, Lord, for keeping them blind in their sins. That's in essence what Jesus is thanking the Father for. Now, Jesus is not against wisdom. Jesus is not against prudence. In a better word, there will be intelligence instead of prudence. He's speaking of the self-important, those who think that they in of themselves are wise and intelligent. So Christ is not saying that every Christian is dumb, though there are those too. But that's not what he's saying here, that generally Christians are dumb. He's using the standard of the world. Those who, th- who the world thinks are wise and intelligent. And Jesus is saying this. Jesus has no use for them. And he thanks the Father that they have not been able to understand the gospel. Jesus has no use for the proud. And he thanks his Father that their eyes are closed in their pride. Jesus also praises the Father for revealing the gospel to the humble. Look at verse 25 again. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Babes or infants are those who are completely helpless. And they know that. They are those who have realized that they are under the burden of sin and that they can do nothing about that. The, the babes here in verse 25 are the same as the burdened and tired ones in verse 28 when Jesus invites them to come to them. Now, why does God do things this way? Why does He hide the understanding of the gospel from some and open the eyes of others? Why is it that here, even among us today, we have people who have been hearing the gospel for years and still don't understand it, and you have other people who heard the gospel yesterday and have come to know that? Why does God do things that way? Verse 26 explains that. Not the explanation that we might want, but it explains it. Even so, Father... For so it seemed good in your sight. Why is God doing that way? Because it is good. God determined that this was good. Now we would prefer a more detailed explanation. We want to see some X and O's here of why he's doing this way and so on. But he says, because I've determined that this is good. 
And that's the explanation he gives us throughout the scriptures. He did, this, did things this way so that he might receive all the glory. Do you understand that God does not owe anybody anything? God does not owe salvation to anyone. People often ask, why doesn't God save everybody? Right? That's a question that, uh, oh, why doesn't God save everybody? Wouldn't that be nice? Everybody. But we don't usually ask, why doesn't God send everybody to hell? Because he could do that rightly, justly, holy, lovingly, in a good way, do that and be the same God that the Bible talks about. He does things this way because he does not owe anything to anybody. God does not owe anything to you. He doesn't owe salvation to any specific group of people. He doesn't owe salvation to any particular person. And when we say he does, then we are denying the gracious nature of salvation because now one is saved because God owes them that, not because he's infinitely gracious towards them. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, says, God is sovereign, free to conceal, or reveal as he wills. And that's how our God operates. Now, what's the difference between Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and the people who the 70 disciples ministered that came to know Jesus? What is the difference between those two groups? The difference is one, Jesus, and what they did with Jesus. Look at verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. In this verse, Jesus makes the most offensive claim of Christianity. There's no more offensive claim than this. He says, it is only through me that one can know the Father. That's what's most offensive about Christianity. In my experience is that people don't have a problem with Christianity as long as it doesn't have to be the only way. When I went back to Brazil after being saved and talked to my dad, and he was fine with me being a Christian. He was not fine with my wanting to be a pastor. He actually disowned me over that. But the thing that really got to him, it was my saying, Dad, is not always lead, lead to God. It's only Jesus Christ. And when that claim is made, that's when opposition comes into play. And the moment we claim that the Bible, what the Bible claims concerning the exclusive nature of faith in Christ, people get offended. And yet Jesus says, I only know the Father and am known by my Father. And only those to whom I reveal my Father, the Father will know the Father. And then he turns around to you and says, come. He says, those that I want to know will know. And they turn to you and say, come. You are the ones. I want you to know who my Father is. It is in this context of revealing the Father, Jesus makes this gracious invitation. Come to me and take my yoke. It's an invitation to be his slave. In essence, Jesus says, come to me and be my slave. Don't end up like Korah, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And following this adoration of sovereignty, we have this invitation of grace, the receiving of the yoke in verses 28 through 30. Look at verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are three commandments in this passage. Come, take, and learn. Though 
Come is not technically a verb, but has the force of a command. Come, take, and learn. And here Jesus freely offers the gospel to you and invites you to come to Him. And that's what we do. We don't go around trying to figure out, oh, I think the Father is going to make Himself known to Noah, but I'm not so sure about Mary. Or I think the Lord is going to make Himself known to Jordan, but I'm not sure about Rick. No, Jesus turns around and says, the Father will make Himself known to whomever He wants. So what I'm going to do, Jesus says, I'm going to just invite everybody and let the Lord figure out who He is going to respond. So Jesus says to you, come, come to me. Jesus freely offers the gospel to you and invites you to come. J.C. Ryle, the uh, evangelical Anglican bishop of the late 1800s, says about this passage, He, that is Christ, imposes no hard conditions. He does not say anything about work to be done first or establishing whether we deserve His gifts. He only asks us to come to Him just as we are with all our sins and to submit ourselves like little children to His teaching. So Church of Jesus Christ, come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. To come to Jesus to believe in whom He is. And he has done, and, and who he is, and what he has done for sinners such as ourselves. In John chapter six, verse thirty-five, Jesus says, "I am a, the, the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger." And he's speaking in parallelism, like it's so common in Hebrew speech. So he says, "He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." To come to Jesus is to believe in him. So Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come to me. And this invitation is for everyone, especially to those who are laboring and burdened under the weight of their sins. After the sermon, we're going to sing a, a, a hymn, and verse, the fourth verse of that hymn says, let no conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream all the fitness he requires to fill your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. So Christ tells you, come, come and know me. These, when in verse 28, when he says, come to me, all you who labor and a heavy laden, he's not talking about two different separate groups of people. The end between those two terms could be an equal sign. The burden and the heavy laden, the, the tired, the laboring and the heavy laden are the same group of people. Those are the ones laboring under the weight of sin. These are the same kinds of people that Jesus calls sinners and sick in other places. And this is important for us to consider because Jesus is only after those who know they, are, they have messed up. Jesus is only after those who know they are messed up, that they need help, that they are being crushed under the burden of their own sin. Jesus has no use for the perfect ones. If you are a perfect one here today, Jesus doesn't want you. And you don't exist either. But if you think you're perfect... You will never come to Jesus till you recognize that you are not perfect. Jesus says in Matthew 9, just a few chapters earlier, in verse 12, He says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and no sac- not sacrifices, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Are you sick? Are you a sinner? Are you depraved? Are you realizing there's nothing good in you? You're the prime candidate to come to Jesus. And to you, he says, come. And for you who are Christian, that means that you already know that you are not perfect. And that the Father is not looking for you to be perfect. Because he already has the perfect one before him in the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't need another Christ. He has Christ standing before him in his perfection for you. What he wants for you is growth. What he wants for you is for you to become more like his son. And yes, we're going to stumble. And some of us are going to stumble every hour of every day. But yet the father looks at you and says, This is my perfect child. Because the perfect one, Jesus Christ, stands before him in your place. So, believer, come. Come to Jesus. And the rest, now verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest Jesus gives when we come to him is the rest of faith that knows that all our sins have been dealt with. Yes, life is still the picking up of the cross daily and dying for ourselves. Yes, we still count the cost of discipleship. Yes, those who seek to live a, live a godly life will suffer persecution, but we do all that at rest, knowing that our sins have been forgiven. As Spafford says, My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And the context in which those words are written are very important. His daughters had just died in a shipwreck. His wife arrives, arrives in Ireland by herself and sends a cable back home saying something like, only I survived. Words to that effect. And Spafford puts his business in order home, hops on the ship to cross to go meet his wife. And as he's crossing the North Atlantic, the captain, the captain says, This right here is the watery graves of your daughters. Talk about the heartache. Talk about the pain. Talk about knowing that you're never going to see these daughters in this life again. And where does he find rest? Where does he find comfort in that? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. That's the rest that he found. And this invitation is not just to come, but also to take. Look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. Simply put, this is an invitation to become a slave of Christ. This is a strange image, a strange image for Jesus to use because throughout the Old Testament, the yoke was a symbol of subjugation, was a symbol of being cursed by God. It was often the result of sin. And so to have a yoke upon you was not a good thing. And if it wasn't a yoke of iron, it's even worse because that yoke cannot be broken. And yet Jesus says, I want you to put my yoke upon you. And he says that because he knows that we are always going to be yoked to something. That's just who we are. Humans are made to be slaves to something. We're always going to be slaves to something. So he wants us to be slaves to himself. 
not to something else, but to Christ. Paul says that in Romans 6, verses 15 through 18, where Paul says, What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Do you see there? You and I are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. There's no other choice. But God bethink that through the, though you were slaves to sin, yet you obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slave of righteousness. So when we take the yoke of Christ upon us, we become his slaves. And that's the only two choices you have. And who are you? Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? Are you a slave to the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or are you a slave to Christ? That's the only two things that, two conditions, two settings that we have. And that's it. And Christ gives us all kinds of reasons why we should take his yoke. He's, he's gentle. He's humble. The kindness of his yoke. The rest we find in him. The lightness of his yoke. Brother, sister, Jesus is not a hard master. He's gentle. And he is humble. He doesn't drive us. He leads us as a shepherd of Psalm 23 who leads us into green pastures next to the still waters. He doesn't punish us. Rather, he disciplines us that we might produce more fruit. He doesn't pass us on to another master. You know, a human slave owner will sell you if it's convenient to him, if he gets him more money or whatever. Jesus will never pass us on he keeps us forever. He says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I in no wise will cast them out. He doesn't treat us harshly. Rather, he treats us as sons and daughters of his Father. So he says, take upon you my yoke. His yoke is kind. In verse 30, we find the word easy, but the word there is the same word that's translated kind in other places of the New Testament. The yoke of Jesus is completely different than the yoke of sin in the world. It is kind and good. As paradoxically as it may sound, it is when we are bearing the yoke of Christ that we are the most restful. It is when we are the most contented. Rest and contentment are the same. Later on, read uh, Psalm 131 when you go home. And there you have the the psalmist talking about the contentment that we have in Christ, where he says, you know, when we are in sin apart from Christ, we are like that child, the baby who is super hungry and is on her, his mother's lap. Even though he's on his mother's lap, he finds no comfort because he just wants to eat. But when that child's weaned, he can sit on his mother's lap and enjoy that and be contented and just listen to his mother's heart and talk to his mother because now he's found contentment in that place. We were made to bear this yoke. You and I were made to bear the yoke of Christ. As an analogy, uh, we, we are like the husk, a husky dog that finds his fulfillment in dragging a sled across the Yukon in the middle of the Iditarat, in the, the harshest conditions. But that's when he is full of himself. That's when he's content. 
Now we might think, oh no, we like the husk puppy. We're going to keep him in my living room, have him watch TV and eat bonbons, and he's going to be super happy with that. But that's not what he was made to be. He was not bred to do that. The same with us. Our contentment is in being yoked together with the yoke of Christ. And he says the burden of the yoke of Christ is much lighter than the burden of sin because he himself helps us carry. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, that you and I, when we've been saved, we are to work out our salvation. That is, we've been justified, we've been declared righteous before God. His Spirit is in us. Now work that out. Work it out so that you can become holier and holier, so that you can grow in the image of Christ. But then he says, and you do that because it is the Father who is at work in you to will, that is to want and to do of his good pleasure. So his yoke, he, 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 we bear his yoke, but his yoke is easy because he's carrying it for us. So this is an invitation to come. It's an invitation to learn, but also is an invitation, or it's an invitation to take, but also an invitation to learn. Look at verse 29 again. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We come to Christ and we learn from him. Uh, JV, RVJ. R.V.G. Tasker is a commentator in New Testament. And in this particular verse, he says this. He says, to be a pupil of Jesus is to have a very gentle and humble-minded teacher who is never impatient with those who are slow to learn and never intolerant with those who stumble. Have you ever been in a teaching situation and you have a student that you've tried and tried and the kid or adult or whatever just doesn't get it and you just feel like grabbing them and shaking them Come on, how stupid can you be? This is simple. Learn. Jesus doesn't do that for us. We come to Him and you learn from Him. And He's never intolerant of those who stumble. He's never impatient with those who are slow to learn. That's the time of teacher. That's what we learn from Jesus. It's interesting that the word learn is the base word for the word disciple. So in essence, we are called here to be disciples of Jesus. And what is it that we are supposed to learn from Christ? He gives us a clue in the Great Commission where he says, you go and you make disciples of all the world by baptizing them and then doing what? Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. It's interesting that he says, doesn't say teach them to, so that they know what I've commanded. It's teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And that's what we're learning from Christ himself. So ultimately, the invitation to come take and learn is an invitation to become a disciple of Christ. We are at our best when we are disciples of Christ. So here we are at the beginning of 2021. We're considering the yoke of Christ. How does it look in everyday life? How do we bear the yoke of Christ in everyday life? Well, there are several practical things that flow from bearing the yoke of Christ. First is, having the yoke of Christ on us means that we are ready to work. No farmer would put a yoke on his oxen to have them sit idle. You don't do that. Once the yoke is on, you're ready to work. We work in order, we are yoked in order to work. And this is kind of uh, counterintuitive. We rest in Christ and we work for Christ. Those go together. I don't know if you realize that eternity is not us sitting playing harp on fluffy clouds. It's not just not doing anything. We're going to be productive, perfectly productive for all eternity. We're going to work. We're going to praise. We're going to worship. We're going to enjoy each other. 
And it's all that going to be in a state of being at rest. So having the yoke of Christ is that we are ready to work. You and I as Christians are ready to work for the sake of Christ in 2021. Secondly, we are yoked together with others. Each yoke would be attached to at least two animals so that they could do the work that the farmer wanted them to do. Christ binds us together so that together we can work in his service. And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 that we can't be unequally yoked because we can't do the work together if, we are, if the yoke is not balanced, if we're not yoked to the same kind of people as we are. You know, by ourselves, we cannot disciple the nations. We just can't. But as a church, we can, we can make a dent at it. You and I together, yoked by Christ, can break the nations to Jesus Christ. We can turn this world upside down in 2021 if we bear the yoke of Christ together. Thirdly, it is the yoke that Christ places on us. Therefore, the reins of the yoke are in his hands. You know, have you ever seen the guy plowing a field with a horse and there's a plow behind it and he has the reins and the horse goes where he wants it to go and the legs can be straight or, or crooked depending on how the plowman conducts the horse? That's the idea here. We have the yoke of Christ and the reins are in his hand and he directs us. So that means that when we take the yoke of Christ, we put everything in our lives under his control. So we bear his yoke in the way that we fulfill the roles that Christ gave us in our marriages. Again, remember, his yoke is easy and not burdensome. So what he asks us to do in marriage is also easy and not burdensome. We complicate it. We say it's difficult. But when we bear the yoke of Christ, that's what we do. We do the things in marriage that he called us to do. We bear his yoke in the way that we parent our kids. Again, it may be difficult, but it's not complicated. We raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We bear the, the, His yoke in the way that we honor and obey our parents. Again, it's not complicated. Clear. What, what, what does God want me to do as one who lives with your parents? Well, He wants you to obey and honor Him. That's, that's all that He wants you to do. We bear His yoke in the way that we live in our singleness. Contentment. Sexual purity, undistracted dedication to the Lord. We bear the yoke of Christ in the way that we worship Him according to how He wants, uh, wants to be worshipped. But pastor, I really prefer that we worship Him with strobe lights and mood music. And I want to sing a song in worship that I could sing also to my boyfriend or my girlfriend. That's great that you want that. But what you want doesn't matter. If we're going to bear the yoke of Christ, we're going to do what He wants as we worship Him. We bear the, work of, the yoke of Christ in the way that we speak. No gossip, no malice, words of edification. We speak in truth, but filled with love. We bear the, work, the yoke of Christ in the way that we work. Very practical, very everyday. We bear the yoke of Christ the way that we work. The scripture says that we yoke as unto the Lord... And not as man pleasers. How, how's your work ethic as a Christian? How's your work ethic? Do you work as one who is renewed by Christ? Or you only work when people are watching and then you're done? 
We bear the, the yoke of Christ in the way that we think. We bring every thought captive to Jesus Christ. We bear the yoke of Christ in the way that we give of ourselves and of our resources. Are we selfish and we want everything to us? Or are we giving of ourselves? Not begrudgingly because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. We put the yoke of Christ in the way that we entertain ourselves. Not mindless consumption, but edification as the goal. So I just gave you 10 ways that you can bear the yoke of Christ in 2021. Very practical, very everyday, not complicated. Remember, the yoke is easy. Christ says that, that we can bear that. We have 2021 in front of us. We don't know what's ahead of us. I think the last year has taught that's always been the case. But this last year has taught us to see that more, that we don't know what is ahead of us. But we do know that we can make this year the year of the yoke of Christ. And I'll ask you again, who is Christ to you? What are you doing with Christ? What is your belief in Christ? Have you come to Him? And is the yoke of Him in your head? We can make this year a year in which we place everything under the yoke of Christ and live life in a way that shows that the reins of our lives are in His hands. And we can do that I'm confident we can do that because he himself says that his yoke is easy. So, Church of Jesus Christ, come to Jesus, especially if you're labor and you're bearing a burden of sin. Let us pray together. Father Heavenly, thank you that you open the eyes of your people. And we pray that as we look to you, that we see Jesus more clearly and that his yoke will be indeed upon us. We're asking Jesus' name. Amen.